Welcome, everyone. How are you doing today? My gosh, I feel like God right now. It's so loud. So, you must listen to me. I uh, speak with an authoritative voice. Welcome, everybody. How are you all doing today? So good? All right. Uh, today, we are continuing our God's Not Red sermon series, which if you've tuned in for any of them so far, you already know what that means. So, we're not going to belabor that point. Today, since it's Father's Day, I figured we'd talk about suffering, because to be a father is to suffer. Can I get an amen? Amen. Thank you. Um, I wasn't actually expecting any amens there, so I feel like I've scored some sermon points here. Thank you very much. Um, so before we dive in here, I wanted to throw out a little disclaimer, all right? We're going to be talking about Job. We're going to be talking about suffering. But this is a thought exercise. Um, what I'm about to describe for you is a perspective that, if you can internalize it, will help you to cope with the suffering that you experience in your life. But under no circumstance should you take this, take what I'm about to say, to someone who is suffering and throw it at them and see if it helps them out. See, human beings have these things called emotions, which cause them to act irrationally to things that they don't like. and Almost certainly, they will not like you trying to tell them how they should feel whenever they are grieving. So, yeah, because, <laughs> I'm sorry you were excommunicated. That's how we handle that. Yeah, I have that power, yeah. So, don't do it. Don't take this to somebody who's suffering. Don't even like breathe any words of this. This is a thought exercise. We're kind of playing here. We're trying to wrap our head around something, all right? Like I said, if you can internalize it, this will help you. If you can't, then you're not as good a Christian as I am. And that's, that's all we've got. So don't do it. Today, we're going to be talking about Job. Um, a little bit of history about the book of Job. Uh, it's, it's kind of debated on when it was written. A lot of things about it are debated. Um, most believe that it's probably one of the earliest recorded books. Um, some say, they say that it was authored by Moses himself and that Job in particular was probably alive at the same time as Abraham, right? So I don't remember what the date is on that, but Moses probably, they say that Moses wrote it in 1500 BC or so. Now, I had a um, college professor who would occasionally just like go off script in class, you know, for like two minutes and talk about something random. And the one of, one of them that I remember the most was when he went off script about Job. And he said it probably almost certainly was not written as the earliest book, right? The theology that is present in Job is some of the most complicated theology that's presented in the Old Testament. So there's no way that they started with something that complicated and then worked towards a less complicated uh, theology. Um, he said that it's probably a parable about the people who are in the Babylonian exile. Job represented the righteous that had been suffering at the hand of the Babylonians, and it was just sort of a, a prose, a narrative, to kind of help them cope with what, where their lives were going. And I thought that was pretty interesting. So clearly, of the two, since that one's more interesting, it's almost certainly exactly what happened. Um, so I invite you to believe that now with me. You're welcome. But uh, regardless, it's kind of debated about when this book was actually written. Okay, That's just some fun facts for you. 
um, some, some uh, I guess, like pros, cons, some arguments one way or the other. The book itself kind of presents itself as history, right? The, the book starts out about, it says there was a man from the land of Ur or Uz, I can't remember which one because it's been like 12 whole hours since I've looked at it. Uh, and his name was Job, and it, it describes real names, real places, of people, so it, it kind of presents itself as a history. And additionally, it is referenced, or Job himself is referenced in Ezekiel and James as a real person. So at least Ezekiel and James kind of thought or kind of presented him as a real dude. On the other hand, the book itself reads more like Shakespeare, reads more like a play, right? Most of the other books, if you actually look at them, it, it tends to describe a lot of action. And Job itself describes a lot of words. It's just talking. It's uh, people talking off of each other, right? It's almost as if the characters in the story don't matter as much as the ideas that are presented. It's more about uh, offering up some sort of structure in order to get those ideas to bounce off of each other. And like I said, it's relatively complicated theology, um, so it's likely that it wasn't a real thing and more just a way of talking about this thought. Have I bored you enough yet? We're gonna mostly skip right past this though. My question is, does it matter if it's literal or not? Probably not. There's some interesting thoughts in here that we can get, engage with and we can learn from, regardless of whether or not it's actual history or not. And I would invite you to ask that question specifically when viewing the Old Testament through a literal lens. Um, there's a lot of things I feel that it doesn't matter if they really happened, like literally exactly as it was written word for word. Creation story is the one that comes to mind is the biggest. Um, we're not going to touch on it too much. I'm just going to let you get really angry in your heads right now and tune me out for a little bit so that way I can say whatever I want. But does it really matter if it's literal or not? Probably not, right? We're still, it still points us towards Christ either way, and that's the important bit. So let's try to do that a little bit right now since we're beating around the bush a little bit. Now, how many of you don't know the story of Job? How many of you wish to publicly shame yourself for not having, there we go, that's what I'm talking about. All right, yeah, thank you. Um, not, not yet. What? Yeah, that's a later slide. It's, and I believe it's Job history. Um, but basic story of Job is that God and Satan make a bet because Satan believes that Job is only righteous because God protects him and blesses him. So God says, all right, you can destroy everything he has. Um, he does so. And then uh, from there, three of Job's friends say that clearly this happened because you have sinned in some way. Job says, nah-uh. Job asks and pleads with God with what happened. God responds, and then everything that Job had was restored. The part that I really wanted to focus on, um, since this is Father's Day, is the part where God allows his kids to be killed, because I really like delivering sermons about children being killed. Um, <laughs> right now, I'm two for two this month. It's just an exciting topic for me. So, Job 1, 18 through 19. While he was still speaking, another servant came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came across the desert, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. I alone have escaped to tell you. Can I get an amen? 
Thank you. All right. So the, uh, the question that this brings about, right, obviously it, it doesn't matter whether or not it actually happened, but the question it brings up is um, something along the lines of one of these. Did God do good or evil to Job in this story? Was it good for God to have killed his kids? Was it an evil thing to have done? Alternatively, you can ask the question, um, does the existence of tragedy mean that an all-good, all-powerful deity can't exist? How do we mesh the fact that there's evil in the world with a supposedly all-good, all-powerful God? If he has the ability to stop it, why shouldn't he? Does he not have the obligation to? Um, and this, this is kind of where you can start to see that uh, if you were to take this to somebody who is going through a tragedy and you say, well, God's allowed to do this, so he's totally cool, just turn to him, it's not going to go over well. They're not going to listen to you. So again, don't do it. I'll probably try to bring that up a couple more times because I know that I space out a lot and I just want to make sure that I hit the points where everybody has paid attention at some point. Um, this is a rough question, though. Right? It's a very difficult one, it's a very weighty one, and that's perfect for Father's Day because we get a lot, asked a lot of weighty questions, and uh, oftentimes we don't have answers for them. Um, <clears throat> there are a couple of things that I wanted to point us towards. All right? The first one, uh, it, it goes hand in hand with a sermon that I heard delivered a while back by this guy named Christopher DeWar, and I believe <laughs> I'm pronouncing that correctly, so uh, go with it. Uh, and he had delivered a sermon, something akin to everything in the, in the world is the Lord's. So it all belongs to him. And this psalm kind of uh, illustrates that. It says, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, uh, for he has founded it on the seas and established it on the rivers. Now, we have this interesting um, idea in, I guess, our society just as people that, you know, obviously the things that we own, we feel we can do anything with. So why does that not apply to God? Uh, we say that God owns all that is in the world. He owns all the people. It, and it's, it's a different kind of ownership because even for, for things that we feel we've owned, like we didn't actually create them. We didn't breathe them into existence like God did. So any ownership that we think we can claim is overruled by the ownership that God has because he literally brought it into existence out of nothing, right? So if we say that it's actually his, if he is the one that created it, then it shouldn't, it, it, we can't say that it is morally wrong of him to destroy it if he so chooses. It is his to do with as he pleases. Again, this doesn't offer much comfort. This isn't a good idea to talk about when somebody's grieving. Uh, you can't tell somebody who just lost their kids that God took them because they're his and you shouldn't have a problem with that. Um, or if you really want to try it out, let me know how it goes. Spoiler alert, it's going to go poorly. Um, but if we can continue on with this idea a little bit, Job 38 through 41, I feel like, can largely be boiled down to a very dad-like response, because I'd said so. Um, up until this point, Job is pleading with God, you know, why have you done this to me? I've, I've done, I've been a righteous man, and yet I've found this punishment. And God just comes in and tells him, you know, where were you when the earth was founded? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I created the waters, when I separated the waters? All this stuff, it's very poetic, but it's also kind of, to me, just one giant, because I said so. I'm the dad, right? I created this, so I get to do what I want. 
Um, I appreciated that a lot. Um, I like to find laughter in pain uh, because it helps me to cope with it. I invite you to do the same, just not in somebody's face. Um, but the real point that I think uh, I want to make in all of this, the real perspective Am I, okay, sorry, my hearing went out a little bit, I think, I don't know. Philippians 121, uh, this is Paul's letter, uh, for those of you that are not super familiar with where exactly this is, because I have given you almost no context. Uh, at this point, Paul was in jail, uh, and he starts Philippians by saying, like, he's, he's joyful that he's in jail, because all the people around him, all the guards, all of the other prisoners know that he's there for the gospel. And he goes on to say that there are some people who are preaching the gospel for God's sake and some people pre who are preaching it for personal gain. But he doesn't care because it's, all, it's getting preached everywhere. And he throws in this line, for to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. And what the, uh, I guess the conclusion I draw from this is that a lot of times we feel like suffering is a bad thing. Um, more so like... Um, Sorry, let me, let me figure out how I want to phrase this thought here. If I were to ask any of you, you know, what was something good that happened this week to you? You might offer up things like, I got my first paycheck. Um, I don't know, I can eat real foods now. Um, my kids weren't that crazy. Uh, I went to Origins and I had the time of my life again this year, and now I have to live for another year waiting for Origins to happen again. It was great, thank you for asking. Um, you might offer up something like that, something that makes you personally happy, right? Something that brings joy to your life, something you enjoy. Um, but I think the apostles and many of the prophets and even Job in this story had this understanding that life wasn't about what brings you happiness, but rather life should be about what brings God happiness. And so we shouldn't define what is good and evil based on what, what we enjoy, but rather define good and evil based on what God enjoys. Uh, and more so, uh, not just as a thought pattern, but as, like, as a way that we live our lives, right? So if you can internalize this idea that suffering is not good or evil because you don't like it, but rather that suffering is good or evil based on how close it brings you to God and how close it brings other people to God through you, then you'll find that the things that you would normally think are awful in life aren't actually that bad. So again, if they push you towards God, if they push other people around you towards God, then how can we say it's a, it's, it's a bad thing? It might be something that's inconvenient for us. It might be something that we don't like. But the ultimate good is not our convenience. The ultimate good is Christ. And so, as I said, uh, I believe this verse kind of points to that idea. It says to me that Paul understood this at the core of his being, and with his very life, he lived as though he believed that, right? Uh, and I, I kind of want to push that a little bit here, because it's not just about mentally asserting that, yes, this is true. It's about living your life as though it's true, like placing your faith in it, if you will. And it's a weird idea, right? It, it's freeing, I would say that I'm 100% perfect at this, so if you need an example of what this ideology looks like in life, look to me. I'm so good at this. Um, but you don't have to fret about things that are awful anymore because it, they don't matter as much as Christ does. Now, I'm going to say it one more time, at least. Do not tell somebody who is going through tragedy that their tragedy does not, does not matter because, hey, at least you've got God, right? Right? 
it doesn't help. You're only adding fuel to the fire. Don't do it. Um, one of the things, though, that we also want to do with this sermon series and uh, is kind of wrap in how this how this fits in with what we call the meta narrative of the gospel, right? How does this fit in with God is love? This book doesn't look great. It doesn't make God look great, right? From a morality standpoint, you know, just at first glance. But one of the things that I really pick out from this is this last point. It contextualizes how much he debased himself in order to fix us, right? So here we have a God who breathed the, like all of creation into existence, who has every right to destroy it as soon as we've messed it up. And even more than that, could think of countless awful things to punish us with for the wrongdoing we've done. And instead of doing any one of those things, he sacrifices himself for us from a position of great power, right? This is the most powerful thing in existence. Instead of flexing those guns, he instead sacrifices himself in order to redeem us. If that's, if that's not the greatest picture of love that you can find, then I don't know, find me a better one because that's a pretty awesome one. That's my sermon for today. Um, very quick and to the point because I'm a quick and to the point guy. Are there any questions, though? Yeah. Yeah.